0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you, z for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing
1: more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico.
0: It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day
0: trial.
1: One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Taking your calls at 888-887-3837. That's 888-888-PETER. And if you can't get through on the phones, you know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. This is such an amazing place. You learn so much about our president that you thought you learned in school, guess what, you didn't. Imagine a guy who, especially in this election year, who won the uh, won the election with the lowest number of popular votes in the history of the Republic. He became president with 34% of the votes. Talk about a split election. Memories of Ross Perot in, in, in 1992, perhaps. In any case, a great place to visit. You learn so much, uh, and you know, the Doris Kearns Goodwin book, of, uh, Team of Rivals, it comes alive here. I'm telling you, well worth the visit. Lots of stuff to talk about in the news, of course. Still the fallout from the uh, explosions in Brussels at the airport. It raises a very important question that we need to talk about, and that is, at what point do you balance security with convenience? What point do you balance security with freedom, the freedom to travel? And what can you possibly do when people are that committed to kill everybody, including themselves, to actually create a real secure zone? Let's go back to the playbook from, uh, from 9-11, or post-9-11, I should say, when you saw airlines and airports basically redefine, at least for the moment, the security perimeter around the airports. You may remember that at that particular time, no one was allowed to the airport unless they actually had a boarding pass. No meters, no greeters, no family members. If you showed up at a car at least a quarter of a mile outside the airport, you were stopped by armed police who demanded to see your ID. They had to, They would inspect your car, open the trunk. And make sure you were actually a bona fide passenger leaving that day. Guess what? It worked perfectly. First of all, the airport was not in danger. Second of all, the airport wasn't crowded. Third of all, the airport worked on time. It actually worked. Well, how long did it last? Not long. Why? Nothing to do with security. It had everything to do with commerce. The airport concessionaires complained that they had a staggeringly big drop in revenue. Because no one was showing up at the airport, except the people who were actually flying. Airports were complaining because they got revenue from the concessionaires. So it was a money deal, not a security deal, that quickly moved the airports to do what? Back to the old days of just showing up at the departure level and leaving on the plane. You may also remember, in the wake of 9-11, uh, the positive bag matching that was basically put into place, which, by the way, is a great rule. And this is what it said. You could not check a bag on a flight and then choose not to get on that flight and have your bag fly anyway. So they were scanning bags, and if somebody checked in for a flight and didn't get on the flight and had a checked bag on that plane, we all know what happened. The plane was delayed while they went in the baggage hold and removed that bag. Makes sense, doesn't it? Especially in light of what happened with the Russian airliner over, over Egypt. Well, once again, it gets down to who wants to pay the money for that kind of incre- uh, increased security. You think there's positive bag matching today? There might be on a couple of high-profile flights going to the Middle East, but for everybody else, it's basically falling apart. I talked to an agent in Chicago from Lufthansa who told me they're freaking out over there because for the last three years, they're getting all sorts of bags showing up for passengers who never made their flights, who were connecting to Lufthansa flights. Something's wrong. And what that means is, The security system is falling apart again. So we have the knee-jerk reaction, which we understand, right? That's the knee-jerk reaction. Increase the perimeter around the airport. Look what's happening in Brussels. They First of all, they erected a separate tent because the terminal is still badly damaged. They exacted a longer perimeter around the airport. They can only handle, get this, 800 passengers a day. You know what they normally handle at the Brussels airport? 45,000 passengers a day. So how long can this last before the economics take over? How about this? How about the common sense takes over? Let's go back to uh, the way it should be. You don't need to take your entire extended family at the airport just to say goodbye to you. You're not leaving to visit the New World. You're not on the Nina, the Pinto or the Santa Maria. This is not, you know, this is not a new thing. We get on planes, we take off, and and if we're lucky, we land. Uh, We have to change the economic profile of how airlines earn money and how airports earn money and how cities earn money from those airports so that, look, let's talk about why we go to an airport. Let's get real. Am I going to the airport to move into the airport? No. Am I going to the airport to eat fine dining? No. Am I going to the airport to entertain all my friends? No. I don't want to go to the airport. I just want to get through the airport so that I can get to where I really want to go. I always laugh when I see rocking chairs at airports like Charlotte and a few other locations because what a rocking chair tells me about the airport is they're telling they're sending you a message. You're going to be here a while. I don't want to be there a while. I just want to get there, get on the plane and leave. So if the airports and the cities are so dependent on revenue for people buying overpriced bottles of water that they can't take through security anyway, uh, why is that now going to trump, I hate to use that word these days, but how is that going to trump security which is supposedly based on common sense. So what we need to do now is, yes, you're going to see a show of force. I was in Venice the other day. Show of force. I was in Frankfurt the other day. Show of force. You know, police in heavy uniforms with with weapons displayed at choke points around the airport. Big deal if the European Union isn't really scanning the passports. How do you think that cell grew in Belgium to begin with? Right? And we're not talking about the cell in Belgium that just resulted in the explosion at the airport. We're talking about the cell in Belgium that started, that resulted in the shootings at Paris at the nightclub last November. Why? Because the European Union got lazy. They allowed free flow of people through every border. I mean, it was leaking like a sieve. And this is before the Syrian refugee crisis. So we need to tighten up the borders. That's no—that's a no-brainer. We need to use common sense in asking the questions of those people going through the border. We need to go back to positive bag matching, and then. It's not a bad idea to do at least a minimal amount of expansion of the perimeter of the security areas around the airport so that the only people who are coming in are literally ticketed, have bags, those bags are inspected, those vehicles are inspected, so somebody can't just drive up to the curb and detonate the car. It's just as bad as doing it inside security, as we just saw in Brussels. Now, if you disagree with me, here's my number, 888-887-3837, that's 888-88-PETER. But you better come armed with portfolio, facts, and history because looking at the facts and looking at the history dictates easily what we should be doing here and what we should have been doing since 9-11. Toto, i
0: repeating we're not in Kansas anymore.
1: My next guest is somebody who took me around this incredible museum earlier today. Uh, he is not just a wealth of information. He is Mr. Information. He's the curator of the Lincoln Collection right here at the Presidential Library Museum, Dr. James Cornelius. Good day, Peter. And thank you for doing that, James. I mean, you know, we take so much for granted. And when you and I were talking earlier off, off air, you know, people know about the Lincoln Memorial, but they think Lincoln's buried there. He's not. He's not. He's not. They, You know, they know about Gettysburg because they know about the Gettysburg Address. Mm-hmm. Um, not many people know about what's really here, and yet isn't it interesting that this museum is the most visited presidential museum of all the museums? That's right. How'd that happen?
3: How'd that happen? Yeah. Well, we have the best collection of Lincolniana. Told by the
1: curator of the collection. What a yes. self-serving statement, which I believe, by the way.
3: Lincolniana is as much fun to collect as it is to say. and say we it have again. Lincolniana.
1: Oh, my God. It sounds like something has to be removed. <laughs> no, no. I'm sorry, sorry. You've got
3: a going on your arm. Preserved and displayed for the public to learn from. Yeah. Uh, Lincoln's stovepipe hat, the one made of I beaver saw fur, I is saw on view right you now. You
1: know, we take all that for granted. I walked over there, and I had to stop and kind of take it in. Yeah, Because it's right there.
3: It's not a photocopy. Yeah. It's the real thing.
1: What else was amazing to me, in in, in the short tour that I took, i got to come back and do a longer tour, but what is now the Lincoln Bedroom. Mm-hmm was really where he hung out. In In, in the White House. In the White House. Yes. Um, And, you know, we talk about Doris Kearns Goodwin in her book, Team of Rivals. She wasn't kidding. Nobody got along. And yet, things got done. Things did get done with um, the
3: usual amount of silence and debate.
1: Or as we would say, (laughs) surus. Yes.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Lincoln... Took his own counsel a fair bit of the time because he's the only person in our system who was elected by the people. None of those cabinet
1: members was elected. Yeah, it's, but you know, here we are in a presidential year. We got you know all the crazy, acidic, combative stuff that's going mm-hmm.
3: on. It's called democracy, Peter.
1: Let me write that one down. Democracy. Okay, Low, lowercase d. Very lowercase. Very. This year. These days, very. Yeah, infinitesimally <laughs> lowercase. But. A very interesting statistic. When Lincoln was first elected, he was elected with what percentage of the
3: vote? 39.5% of the popular vote. Well, Our least popular president. And yet,
1: not by what people think these days. Well, you build your own legacy by what you do. Yeah, but he got in with a very small margin. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting. How many times has the president won the election with not? The majority of the vote. It's six or
3: seven at least. I should count that up exactly. But 1824 is the case that maybe we'll have a reprise of this year when it ended up in the House of Representatives.
1: A well, four- you know, I remember in 1968 when George Wallace was running. Yes. Um, and I was working for Newsweek. People don't realize this, but you know, the election's on a Tuesday. They realize that. But our normal cover stories come out on Monday when we were doing music. We yeah. had to hold the cover Every four years, <laughs> to come out on Wednesday morning because you don't want to, you know, you have to j- jump by on that a moment, yeah. so you have to prepare for the cover. We had three covers, we had Nixon, <laughs> we had Humphrey, mm-hmm. we had Wallace, and then we had a fourth cover. It was a picture of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., with the Capitol blown off, right? Because it was going to get, it was going to go to the House of Representatives, yes, but it didn't.
3: Well, in 1992, most recently, when Ross Perot got something like 18, 19 percent of the vote. And uh, Bill Clinton was elected with a total of about 42, 43 percent of the popular
1: vote. That's the the modern day low level. And, you know, you say it's what you do once you're in office. When he ran for re-election in 1996, he won by a huge margin. Right. Same thing with Lincoln.
3: Right. Though Lincoln, in running for reelection in 1864, took in only voters in the North, since his uh, friends and fellow Americans in the South did not Participate in the election that year. So he had 55% of the vote in the North, meaning that probably nationwide he would have had about 35%. He could have lost. He would have lost. He would have lost to the peace platform of George Brinton McClellan, formerly a a
1: general. Wow. Amazing. So as you walk through, or I should say, as I walk through, other than that iconic legendary stovepipe hat, which by Mm. the way, other presidents have worn stovepipe hats, mm-hmm. although Lincoln's probably best remembered for it.
3: Well, it's partly because he was six foot four, and the hat itself is about eight inches more. So he was with his one inch boot heels. He's seven feet tall, and uh, this is tourney time in the NCAA. But let's just <laughs> remember Madness, that A seven foot person is always worthy of your respect.
1: Yeah, and he's also a target. Yes, as we found out later on. Yes, uh, what's the most surprising? Or the most revealing exhibit that you have here?
3: Well, the most surprising thing that's in the permanent display, I think, is probably those nasty cartoons from the 1860s, 61 period. Which I saw some of those today. Yes. It's shocking to people that Lincoln was so reviled by cartoonists. And, and let's use cartoonists mostly based in New York, or some of those are in London, some are in the South, as an index of... Uh, what popular opinion or establishment opinion? Maybe. Well, no,
1: they were they were an indication of who owned their paper.
3: That too. That too. Let's
1: not forget William Randolph Hearst. Right. His cartoonists would basically steered us into the Spanish American War. Come right. on.
3: But maybe without um, too many people objecting to that, frankly. Right. So the 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 cartoonists have uh, are an index of popular feeling, maybe. Sure. And a lot of them were. Nasty and brutal, ideologically, of course, but Lincoln was physically easy to caricature, and and everybody likes that. It's a distraction from thinking. So we tend to make fun of the way people look, and that's okay, but... We still do. The, the main point is How about
1: Donald Trump's hair? It,
3: well, how about it? Yeah. Does it conceal everything that's going on underneath? Don't answer that, please. But the point is that <laughs> we don't know... What a person is capable of in office once the campaign is done.
1: That's right. It's the famous last line in the movie *The Candidate* with Robert Redford. Where he looks looks at the camera, and goes, "Now what do I do?" Yeah, he won. <laughs> I know. What is it that you discovered that people had no clue about Abraham Lincoln? Well, that I've discovered. Yeah.
3: Um, I'm interested in what he read. If you think that what you've read actually forms your mental outlook on the world, which it does sometimes and what doesn't, and we're always finding new things and new evidence about what he read. There is a book that is the tip top of science at the time in the mid 1850s about race. And where mankind came from, which refutes the biblical story of uh, the Garden of Eden and Genesis, and it, that postulated, based on new scientific fossil findings, that mankind was made of three different races, white, black, and Indians and therefore blacks were not your fellow man, and it was okay to not treat them as your fellow man and therefore enslave them. Lincoln read this book. It was called Types of Mankind. He read it during a legal case in the mid-1850s in which his client in a county adjacent to here was accused of being a black man, though he had passed for white his whole life, and uh, Lincoln made great sport of the scientific notion that you could really define white from black. Look at Othello in Shakespeare's play. He's a Moore, Moor, M O O R, a North African, something in between black and white. Lincoln won the case, and we now know that. He was trying to stay on top of the newest current science that all the professors at Harvard and in London believed in, and all the slave owners in the South did too.
1: Well, like many presidents before him and certainly after him, he was a lawyer first. Yes. Hello. Uh,
0: this is your captive speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm.
1: have been talking with Dr. James Cornelius, the uh, the curator of the Lincoln Collection here. It sounds like, you know, a new f- a new fragrance, the Lincoln Collection um, <laughs> at the museum. You're always acquiring new stuff, aren't you? Yes. I- I mean, it's hard to believe, but they're still surfacing. There are. Anybody
3: who got a letter from lawyer Lincoln or President Lincoln 150, 170 years ago probably held on to it for a while. Some of them emerge into the market 10 years after his death. Some emerge 150
1: years. And as long as they don't appear on Antiques Roadshow, they can come here.
3: Well, some of them do appear there or (laughs) other places, and uh, there are a lot of forgeries out there. There are a lot of reproductions, most of all. Cheap collectibles, because everybody wants to own a piece of Lincoln.
1: Is there somebody here on the staff who can truly decipher the real ones from the phonies?
3: There are a half dozen of us who consult on these things, and we do on occasion speak to the auction And you speak with consensus? Uh, Not always, but Ah. usually. Okay, so now
1: let me ask another one, because there are all these, you know, we talk about his letters, his writing as a lawyer, for Mm -hmm. example. What about his love letters?
3: His love letters, there were, we couldn't afford to buy the last one that will likely ever be available. It was sold at auction. Was it to his wife? A few months ago. No. Mary and Abraham burned all their letters when they moved to Washington, so that we wouldn't be invading their privacy every day the Lessons way we do now. Lessons
1: for future politicians <laughs> to learn. Yeah. Delete
3: those emails. They're and, all gone, Under huh? a private or public server. They threw them all. They uh, missed about three or four of them, luckily. It's not clear how that happened exactly. Pulled off the burn pile in the backyard, was okay. the rumor by one neighbor. But Lincoln had a fiancé... Before he met Mary Todd.
1: And those letters are still around.
3: Three of them survived and one of them was sold for uh, in the well into the six figures a few months ago. We can't afford that these days, I'm afraid.
1: Now, you know, if you read the gossip pages, there are always rumors that he had another lover. Mm-hmm. True
3: unknown. They're, you're thinking of two different people, maybe. Ann Rutledge, supposedly his first love when he was about 24, 25, 26. She was 22. I'm talking
1: about one during his presidency.
3: No, nobody during his presidency except his wife. Mary Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln loved one another without a doubt, though like a lot of men and women, they're just not all that compatible on the surface. But they had a lot they of They
1: stayed together for the sake of the kids.
3: For the kids and for the sake of the party and the nation. They were So it was all for show? Living no. Living embodiments of this country. They were, were they both separa- con-
1: were they in separate bedrooms?
3: As most Victorian middle class couples were. Aha. huh. Yes. But they were Kentuckians who thought of themselves as Americans, even though most of Mary's male relatives were fighting for the Confederacy.
1: Whoops. Yeah. Yeah, that's a civil war. <laughs> Not a good family reunion at that point.
3: Lincoln's attorney general, who was from St. Louis, had one son a general in the Union Army and one son a general in the Confederate Army. That's w- a
1: civil war. That's exactly the civil war. Did they both survive the civil war? Yes. Did they reconcile? Uh, sort of. <laughs> the answer is always going to be sort of. <laughs> well,
3: do families ever reconcile?
1: No, they're all dysfunctional. Let's get it real here. Every family is dysfunctional. No, there
3: were several senators who had sons in the same category divided and who among lincoln's cabinet would you say was the most influential person Probably William Seward, his Secretary of State, who was expected to win the nomination in 1860 and then win the presidency. He went on a grand tour of Europe the previous year just to meet Queen Victoria and Emperor Napoleon and all the importance that he'd be on and a with. And by part the way, politicians and are still,
1: he, and they're still doing that today to show themselves as yeah, global and worldly. Right. Yeah. And
3: he swung and he missed. He did not get the nomination. And he was so he an excellent Secretary of
1: State. So he went out and purchased Alaska.
3: Thank God for that. Yeah, Seward's Folly. Yes. Right. $7.2 million of priceless.
1: No kidding. Also, it was Seward with the Emancipation Proclamation who said, don't release it right away.
3: Right. Because you need a military victory to announce this on the heels of. Otherwise, you look like you're desperate and down to nothing but freed slaves as your soldiers.
1: And, you know, something that I learned today, and I admit to being ignorant about it because I really thought I knew it. I always thought Kentucky was with the Confederacy.
3: It was not ever technically with the Confederacy, though its governor, when the war broke out, was a Confederate sympathizer and was obliged to remove himself from office. He did not have the support of his legislature or important people around him.
1: But what Lincoln had to do, you know, now that I know this, is he had to keep Kentucky in the fold or he could have lost the whole kit and cabool. That's right.
3: The Ohio River there separating us, the waterways... Mason-Dixon line, north from south, had to be kept in Union control. And by and the lines. way,
1: for those people who think that river cruising is dead in America, it's coming <laughs> back. Uh, I was just on a paddle wheeler, American Queen, uh, which is an original steam engine back from the 1800s. They re- they've restored, and we forget how long these rivers are. You know, you can take the Mississippi, and by the by, if you look at their tributaries, take it all the way up to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. So when you take a look at how important the rivers were to nixon to, to i said nixon didn't i how the well, probably him too how important these rivers were to, to lincoln's need to keep the the, the, the union together mm-hmm. you lose the rivers you lose the war
0: riding along in my automobile my baby beside me at the wheel cruising and playing the radio with no particular place to go
1: Dr. James Cornelius, the uh, curator of the Lincoln Collection here at the museum in Springfield. Just fascinating stuff. You know, when you talk about bodies of water, we're just talking about the rivers. Mm -hmm. We forget how important they were, not just for commerce, but for boundaries. Right. We forget how they actually separated the states. Yes. And how if you didn't control the river, you didn't control anything.
3: Right. It's the later idea that uh, we needed a a two-ocean blue-water navy in Teddy Roosevelt's era for our self-defense, that the reason, one big reason, hardly the only reason, the Union won the Civil War, is that it had maritime superiority
1: in yeah, a but, big way. And they actually, at one point during during the end of the war, or towards the end of the war, they split the, they split it in, tw- in threes.
3: Right. The victory at Vicksburg, Ulysses Grant finally prevailing there, and a few days later, driving on down the rest of the Mississippi, is what split Texas and Arkansas and Louisiana from the rest of The Confederate States. You
1: know what I learned on the riverboat, which amazed me? I mean, I've been so propagandized over the years. Do you know what the average age of a riverboat was Mm. on the Mississippi in the 1800s? I bet not. 18 months. It either blew up, caught fire, or sank. Right. Right. We've come a long way since then. Stuck on a log. That's why Mark Twain
3: was uh, wise to learn all those funny words for how deep the water was.
1: Well, Mark Twain comes from that. Yes. That's how they did the the depth of the water. (laughs) By the way, I recommend everybody a book that nobody remembers that Mark Twain wrote. They all know about Huckleberry Finn. What they don't know is a book called The Innocents Abroad. Oh, yeah. A phenomenal book that I highly recommend you read because here's a guy at that time who went around the world. He traveled around the world... Not the way we travel today. I mean, it was an ordeal. And here he is reporting from the pyramids, and here he is in Morocco. It's it's crazy. But you know what I loved about that book? Hmm. The same complaints that we have today (laughs) about nickel and diming in hotels. He was complaining about then. You know what he's complaining about? They nickel and dimed you for soap and candles. Oh my God. Today, it's a bottle of water and That's the mini- and, so and Wi-Fi. You know? Logging on, yeah. Yeah, logging on. But then it was a bar of soap and candles.
3: Well, and General Grant did the same thing after his two terms in the presidency, which was around the time that Twain did it, too. Suddenly, it's possible because the world's all hooked up by telegraph around the globe by the 1870s, and steamboats make it a little easier, a little faster than it had been in the day of sail.
1: But during the Civil War, you still had telegraph.
3: Yeah, but not It was broken all the time. No, well, it depended where the enemy had cut down the lines. Luckily, the telegraph under the uh, Atlantic wasn't working at the time. Otherwise, we would have been at war with the British in 1861. But they had to take 10 days to get a letter by boat back and forth. Tempers could cool off.
1: Well, you know, there's a lesson learned there. Be careful what you put in writing is 10 days later, you gonna regret it. That's right. Today, it's 10 minutes later, you That's regret right. it. Was, it. Before you push the send, send button, button, think. Yeah. Or if you don't think, it'll end up in the collection here at the museum. Hope so. Yeah, I know. <laughs> What's your most priceless object other than the hat?
3: Well, the Gettysburg Address is number one, without a doubt. People around the world still memorize it. It's been available in essentially every language on earth for a century. And it is a little distillation of what we hope about past, present, and future. But mostly it's a tribute to soldiers who died in the cause, which makes it timeless and placeless for all all countries.
1: And set me straight, what was it written on?
3: It's written on plain paper with white background and blue lines, the same as you used in sixth grade.
1: When I was growing up, I was told he wrote it on a lunch bag.
3: (laughs) Not that or an envelope, No. no. He worked at it at his desk.
1: He did? Yeah. You see all the revisions on the pages, too?
3: There are actually five different copies of it in his hand. Three of them are nearly the same, except the key phrase, under God, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom. And that phrase is not in the two drafts that he left behind in the White House with his two secretaries, but he did write it out that way later on.
1: The other rumor we have to lay to rest, he's not buried at the Lincoln Memorial.
3: Hmm. He's buried here in Springfield, which was the only place he ever chose to live on his own. And the Lincoln home here, the only national park in Illinois, run by the National Park Service, is the only home he ever owned. This was Lincoln's home. And he is buried two miles north of here at Lincoln's tomb where Mary... Appropriately
1: titled Lincoln's tomb. It is.
3: It's the second most visited cemetery in the country after Arlington.
4: If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination,
5: please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care.
1: And as regular listeners know, whenever I show up in a new town, a new, t- a new city, a new village, whatever, the best place I go for information, no, it's not the Chamber of Commerce, it's not the Convention and Visitors Bureau, not the police station, it's not a cab driver. I go to the firehouse. These guys have been in everybody's restaurant, they've been in everybody's hotel, they've been in everybody's house. They know where to go, they know where not to go, and of course they know where to go eat. And my next guest is laughing because he's the fire chief here in Springfield. <laughs> And his name is Barry Helmer. Is it Helmrichs? Helmrichs. I got it right. Chief, I'm just going to call you Chief. That's perfect. Is that good enough? Absolutely. Did you like that introduction? Yeah, that, that was awesome. Did I get true. it right? Yeah, it? it was great. But it's kind of true, isn't it? I mean, you guys, yeah, it is. I mean, you've been on the force how long? 25 years. So you've been in everybody's house and hotel and restaurant? Just about. Just about. And so, you know, seasonally, you know, temperature wise, you know, temperament wise. Sure. Where things are going on. I try All to at right? least. And look, here we are. It's capital estate, you know, it's got great history. You got some great old buildings, absolutely. some of which have probably been grandfathered on the fire codes, and you got to worry about that, right? You're laughing, but you absolutely,
5: know. that's that's true. If they change their occupancy, then we have to we have to look at them again. As long as they keep what they've had, you know, over the years, they, sure. they kind of grandfather in.
1: What's your biggest challenge here in Springfield?
5: Our biggest challenge. Um, I think, is kind of money-wise anymore with the way the economy is to keep us going. You know, our, our guys do well, and, and they deserve to do well. And it's right. just a constant fight with, with, you know, raising those funds, having those resources to keep doing the job we like to do.
1: Now, we always have a retention and a recruitment problem as a volunteer department. I'm a volunteer fireman in New York trying to keep our forces up because if you're going to volunteer, you have to really want to do it absolutely uh, because it's not just about showing up at meetings it's your current training but in your situation i mean do you have a recruitment problem too not really we have a lot of guys that want the job i
5: yeah. mean there's a lot of volunteer departments around us and smaller communities that have paid departments but we're about fifth largest or I, I should say we're about the third largest department in the state after chicago and rockford we're about the third largest and a lot of guys want to come work here a lot of people want to come work here exactly because of our size you know and our activity we're, we're a busy
1: department all right so now let's get to the important questions don't think about a guidebook. Don't think about a brochure. But if you're entertaining a visitor from out of the city, where do you take them to eat?
5: Well, I would take one of my favorite lunch places. Actually, it's called Ritz Little Friar to get the, <laughs> the famous Springfield Horseshoe. You know, 1928. Springfield it's, Horseshoe. Yeah. I mean, it's a very regional thing. It started about 1928 here. Leland Hotel started it. It's probably the only place in anywhere that you can get one. What is it? Well, actually, it's like two pieces of toast. And it started with ham, but now you can get any kind of meat you'd like. Right on top of this toast, and they pour a cheddar cheese sauce all over that, and then they dump fries all over it. So it's like so really, really healthy for so you. So
1: basically, you, you <laughs> need to be an EMT to eat there. Just about. i yeah. sure it they about
5: stops your heart right on on contact. Of course. But then if you,
1: if you guys are there, you got one stop shopping. You yeah, know. Exactly. Exactly. So that's what the firemen eat, huh? Uh, Come on! That, no,
5: that's what that, that is. That's a thing from Springfield here, and of course we got some pretty good chili. We've got a famous place called down the road. Uh, it's called the Chili Parter. Now it started as the Den, 1945. Became Joe Rogers Chili. Now it's called the Chili Parter. It's it's famous for its firebrand chili. You get your put your name on the wall if you eat a bowl of it. It's absolutely it's that, it's that, that bad. It's that hot.
1: Oh my god! I did it about
5: 25 years ago. But I, you have to finish the whole bowl. you Have to finish the whole bowl. The records like <laughs> now eight, if you
1: finish the whole bowl, they give it to you for free.
5: Uh, you know, you still got to buy it, but you get your name on the wall. <laughs> I mean, I think the I think the world records like for down there is like eight bowls of that stuff. I don't think I could eat. Okay, eight that's bowls of definitely chili. a
1: paramedic call. I mean, I'm sorry. yeah,
5: that guy's got an iron stomach, obviously,
1: or he has a new iron stomach. It's something. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and what about what's the biggest surprise place to eat?
5: You know, I'm trying to think about a great surprise place because I always want to tell you about something local. You know, everybody's, oh, no, got, I want, I want everybody's
1: got the chains everywhere. No, we, don't, we don't talk about chains here. We want something right. that's particular to uh, Saputo's
5: is famous in Springfield also. It's over by our, our city municipal center there, and they've been in business for probably 50 years also. Really good Italian food there. Uh, they have a, a filet mignon that's it's, uh, got a, like a breaded a crusted garlic on it it's it's Ooh, that's it, cool it is very good it's absolutely fantastic
1: so we're talking serious carbs here in springfield oh yeah i mean look at us all yeah it's midwest what do you mean look at us all i'm looking at you <laughs> hey chief no i'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no it's the midwest forgetting eating now what's the biggest attraction here for you the, the thing that you you keep going back to as a local as a local
5: well it's it's tough because i'm uh I'm a golf fanatic, so I like playing golf. You know, so I go to all the golf courses around here, and we have we have a lot of municipal. Okay, courses. what's
1: the, what's the cool- Okay, let's talk about municipal for a second, because people don't give those guys enough credit. Right. What's the coolest municipal course here? We're well, not going to have to wait nine hours for a tee time. And-
5: oh, Lincoln Greens, of course, is good, and then there's a little course in the middle of town called Bun. Nice eighteen hole course, tight. Not super long, but very tight. It's, it's a lot of fun.
1: So basically, if I want to find you, he's either eating or uh, golfing. Or golfing
5: or boating. I'm a boater, too. Oh, and we my. have a lake out here. And I, I, go, I go over to the Illinois River, though, too. And I love I to boat, too.
1: But keep in mind, the chief's on the radio. He can always be found. That's I'm, right. I'm trying to protect you here.
5: Hey, absolutely. <laughs> hey, i got my phone number. They know where I'm at.
1: How many, how many runs did you do last year? Right at 17,000. 17,000. Right. You know how many runs I did last year? 92.
5: You know, it's just, it's that way. We've been at 17,000 for about five years now.
6: We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Howard Radio, clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh?
1: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and thirty-day trial. I've been coming to Springfield for probably thirty years. What I like about this place is two things, which seems like they're they contradict each other. It's always changing and it never changes. I mean, that's a good way to describe a place that is understands what it is mm-hmm. and understands its own reason for being. Joining me now is somebody who understands that better than anybody. He's the Honorable Mayor of the city of Springfield, Illinois, James Langfelder, Hello, sir. Great. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks, Mr. Mayor. You heard my introduction. It's a city of what, about 117,000 people? That's correct. And have you grown?
7: Uh, we have, actually. And what hasn't changed is, you know, my dad used to be mayor, so I chuckled a little bit. Uh, but uh, when he was mayor, it was around 70,000, 80,000. So we have grown, but uh, not by the leaps and bounds that some would like.
1: And you're a lifelong resident. Right.
7: That's correct. You're a real local guy. Right. Yeah. I went to school here, college here, Lincoln Land Community College and UIS, uh, which used to be saint Mid-State University. Okay.
1: I have to ask the stupid question. Is there anything in Springfield not named Lincoln? Uh, sure. There's
7: <laughs> <Come on>. <laughs> restaurants, <laughs> you know City Hall. <laughs> yeah. It's not called Lincoln like really, City Hall? That's right. But no, we uh, love Abraham Lincoln because of the rich history without uh, that impact to Springfield. Who knows what it would be? You know, of course, we wouldn't be the capital city of Illinois.
1: Well, you know, what's interesting to me, and, and I'm one of those outsiders. OK, I'm aware of the Lincoln Memorial. And I, I first saw the Lincoln Memorial when I was in junior high school. We took that school bus trip from New York. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, of course, you read all about Gettysburg. You see the C- the Civil War specials on on PBS. The you know the, the Ken Burns specials, mm-hmm. all that's great. But you don't always think of Springfield, right? Right. I mean, you knew mm-hmm. when I was in school, you studied. Okay, he was born in a log cabin. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been ingrained, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But until you come out here and visit the museum, then things begin to take perspective, don't mm-hmm. they?
7: Right, uh, a lot of individuals, even the locals, don't uh, see the perspective or the impact Lincoln had here in Springfield, and then of course across the nation. But we, you know, have Lincoln's home that he's—that's the only home he's actually purchased. Lincoln's tomb, of course, Lincoln heard in the law office uh, where he practiced law. And see, of course, Lincoln is state not captain.
1: buried at the memorial; he's buried here. Right, people that's don't correct.
7: know that. Right, that's correct. Well, it's uh, good people like you that help advertise it, and that's why. Well, I don't advertise. I'm sorry. No, we don't That's have, a no-no. That's a no-no. I'm sorry. No, I present. I don't. Right. I, I don't that's promote. Right. Yeah. Well, promote it. That's no. I don't even promote. it. Even I present it. it. Boy, I'm Mr. Really Mayor. Up. What are you doing to me? <laughs> But you know what I'm saying. Right. I mean, people don't know. Right. That's correct. And so it's up to us to always tell that tale because there's individuals you uh, come across every day and they don't realize what Springfield has to offer. You know, when you okay, well, let's start with what Springfield has Mm -hmm. to offer. You've got a rich history, Mm -hmm. right?
1: You're also a hub. You can can, can branch out and see parts of Illinois that other people just take for granted.
7: Right. Uh, Actually, we've become a regional hub with regards to the medical community. Uh, we have one of six learning and innovative centers in our medical district. And what we're trying to do is tie the economics together with tourism. But what individuals don't realize, they realize Lincoln's story with regards to race relations, you know, freeing the slaves. And then President Barack Obama, he made his announcement at the old state capitol. uh, So he had his uh, political roots here in Springfield at the state capitol. But what a lot of individuals wouldn't know is our kind of our, Uh, tragic past, which was the 1908 race riots, which led to the formation of the NAACP. Happened here. Right. Explain what happened. Well, uh, at the time, it was, uh, you know, there was the individual uh, black uh, gentleman that was accused of uh accosting a white female. She made an accusation and so there's riots on the street streets and uh you know houses were burned, there's lynchings and then uh what happened was actually there were good sides of it where the sheriff took the individual and you know let him out of town so he remained safe. But there's tragedy whereby people from New York saw what was happening in Springfield. What they ended up doing is forming the NAACP because of those riots. And that happened right here. Right. So we have that, and that's what we're trying to do is embrace that history and tell it, and, you know, fast forward to today, you know, you have Lincoln prior to that, but then you have the uh, 1908 race riots, and then you have the first uh, African-American president. I had roots here in Springfield, so that's unique because it not only impacted Springfield, those three events but and individuals, but it also impacted the state and the country and the world.
1: You know, it's interesting to me that when George W. Bush came to Springfield, mm-hmm. to the museum right here, mm-hmm. he was joined by the two U.S. senators at the time, Barack Obama right. and Durbin. Right,
7: right. Right, it's so you're joined by a future president, right? And nobody knew at that point of in time. Course. Of course,
1: who, who, but, who would know? Right, right, right. Other than travel and tourism, I and mean, that's a huge part of your economic base here, right? People come right. here to visit this.
7: I think it's uh, over seven million dollars a year in the tax revenue, sales tax revenue. That's a big deal for you because mm-hmm.
1: that, f- that funds basic goods and services here. That's correct. What's the biggest surprise about Springfield to you?
7: Well, our ability to be resilient through the economic downturns. How do you, know, How'd you we, do it? Well uh, actually, we had these we were a large employment base was uh, the state state workers you know state employment. but when the downturn happened, uh, of course, a lot of jobs left the area or kind of um, went by the wayside with government. So the medical community started growing, and they did a lot of that themselves. We have uh, St. John's Hospital, Memorial Hospital, and then we have SIU School of Medicine that partnered together to grow our medical district, and we've become a regional hub with regards to the the medical side. And, uh, again, the education side, you know, Lincoln Land Community College, we also have UIS. It was Sangamon State University that partnered up with U of I. And so it's UIS now. And then we have Robert Morris College and Benedictine University. So the education side helped augment that as well.
1: And what's great about that, at least in my, in my perspective, is that these are not huge universities. Mm-hmm. They're small to medium-sized colleges and universities, which gives you more of a feeling of community
7: here. Right. And that's what it's – Springfield's a, uh, you know, a small big town or however you want to say it. A We're small. like a little – uh, Do you actually have a have <laughs> a slogan?
1: Do you have a slogan?
7: Uh, Well, always legendary is the most recent one for tourism. But, <laughs> a you know, small, big town you know, I kind of yeah, like. Yeah. yeah, that's right. But really, uh, that's something we're going to work towards. Uh, again, going back to, to push us to the next level. Uh, you know, people call us a sleepy little town where things don't change. Sometimes they do change. But what we want to do is embrace our history and look forward to the future. And so that's what we're working towards is marketing Springfield um, as a community that millennials would come to But also those that would You're like not chasing millennials, family. are you? No okay, <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to attract them <laughs> uh, I'm with you Be like a magnet
5: On
0: second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot It is a silly place
5: right. I've been everywhere, man Across the desert, it's bare, man I breathe the mountain air, man, travel, I've had my share, man, I've been everywhere. I've been to Boston, Charleston, Dayton, Louisiana, Washington, Houston, Kingston, Texas, County, Monterey, Faraday, Santa Fe, Tollabusa, Glen Rock, Black Rock, Little Rock, Oscaloosa, Tennessee, Tennessee, Chicopee,
1: Spirit Lincoln. And sitting with me right here in the museum, is I'm looking right at Abraham Lincoln. Actually, I'm looking right at Fritz Klein, who's a Lincoln oral historian. And there's just so much. There's almost, there's almost so much stuff to tell, isn't there?
6: Oh, there's always stories to tell. Yes.
1: And I mean, when I landed at the airport last night, I was met by an Abraham Lincoln, who was in full character with a stovepipe hat and greeted me at baggage claim. I've never been greeted by Abraham Lincoln or any other president at baggage claim. <laughs> tell me the stories that you tell. What what what? I suppose the, the, the most important question would be, forget what I think I learned in high school. Forget what I think I learned in elementary school. What's the overriding lesson that you like to tell people that people tend to forget
6: about Abraham Lincoln? Well, it depends entirely on who I'm speaking to. Like but, me, for example. Okay. But I, I think for a ordinary uh, American, reasonably well-educated— I'll
1: accept that compliment.
6: <laughs> As opposed to a child or a foreigner or something sure. uh, d- different, yeah, unusual. I think— people assume that Lincoln went into the presidency intending to emancipate the slaves, which is probably the most common error. Now, some folks have taken that misunderstanding and run with it and said, oh, he had no intention of emancipating the slaves. He was forced to do it, For and they start ascribing bad motives to him and it it gets played out but um that's that's probably the most common misunderstanding that i that i address
1: okay so re-enlighten me
6: <laughs> lincoln's view was uh, the growth of the slave power was going to make it permanent. Within the five years between the close of the Mexican War and the founding of the Republican Party, the national territory that was open to slavery swelled from approximately one-fourth of the continent to three-fourths in five years. So that exponentially growing movement was the reason for the Republican reaction. And uh, Lincoln wanted to return it to its original boundaries under the belief that the original system would eventually extinguish slavery, and that was to to prevent it from going into the Western territories. If they grew uh, large enough, we would have the required three-fourths majority to amend the Constitution without a war. So that was his hope, and most Americans thought that. Even Southerners, which is why they didn't want the Transcontinental Railroad or the homestead act to pass because that would only increase the westward uh, movement and the expansion yeah exactly
1: here we are in the middle of an election year we're, we're, we're seeing some brutal politics out there being played out on television every day let's go back to lincoln's day which was more brutal now or then
6: i suppose it depends on your perspective uh, something lincoln said frequently throughout his life was Human nature doesn't change. It's something he well understood. I don't think he would have been shocked by what we're seeing these days. Um, Not entirely. Uh, There were violent outbursts. Um, Charles Sumner was caned into unconsciousness and and was crippled for life uh, in Congress uh, over some comments made uh, against slavery. Um, Preston Brooks and, and others were given canes to do it again if they ever had a chance, and they were Southern, what they called fire eaters. So um, the shock factor, for instance, with bloody Kansas was terribly violent. So um, we're not experiencing anything entirely new. (laughs) So you're not shocked? No. What was the
1: biggest, as you researched Lincoln, what was the biggest surprise that you learned about him?
6: I think his overall equanimity, the ability to deal with people, even difficult people, well. Um, Common folk were his friends. Um, He mixed in the top-level social circles easily, even though he wasn't from that level of uh, society. And um, that always amazes me, his ability to walk amongst all.
1: Well, you know, that's the Doris Kearns Goodwin book, you know, Team of Rivals. I mean, when you think about it, you're talking about difficult people within his own cabinet.
6: Oh, my, yes. Who couldn't get along with one another and wouldn't come to a meeting if they knew the opponent was going to be there.
1: (laughs) It's amazing. We can certainly relate
6: that to today with Congress, right? Uh
1: You have to give Lincoln credit because he actually made progress.
6: He did. He did. And, of course, these days... If you listen or read uh, the congressional record uh, or listen to speeches on uh, the news media and you read some of the records of what was going on in his day, I think thought process might have been a little different. Uh, certainly the <coughs> elocutionary powers of of speakers and, and senators and representatives um, were more erudite. <laughs> but it seems to me that that there was a, a thoughtful uh, consideration of the future that was more frequent um, in, in the public arena in Lincoln's day. That, that's one difference that seems palpable to me.
1: Well, it seemed that as angry as people were and as contentious as they may have been, they did take enough time to at least have a conversation and listen. Well, some did. Well, somebody had to because otherwise he couldn't have made any progress.
6: Yes, yes,
1: that's true. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And of all the memorabilia, of all the artifacts that are here in the museum, what's the one
6: that resonates the most with you? Oh, my. Well, there's, I haven't seen even 1% of what's here. Of what you've seen. <laughs> of what I've seen. I, I think the hat is probably the most attractive to folk. Um, It's just such an iconic symbol of Lincoln. Uh, Many, especially young people, think he's the only president that ever wore one. (laughs) Which is not true. (laughs) Which is clearly not true. John F. Kennedy had one at his inauguration.
0: Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
1: Joining me now is the uh, columnist for the uh, State Journal Register, Dave Baki Dave, I mean, if I take a look at all the stuff you've been writing about Springfield, it's pretty funny stuff. Thank you. I mean, the donut? Yes. Tell me about <laughs> that. I mean, I mean, let's get quirky right from the start. Okay. The
2: donut. Part of how I find column ideas is I go out in the mornings to different restaurants or barber shops and sit with people. And I was at a restaurant in Chatham, Illinois, which is just a few miles south of here, and as always, people ask me what kind of story I'm looking for, which is difficult to explain. Because
1: you don't really know.
2: No. I don't know when I walk in, but I know it when I hear it. And that day, Sort of like pornography. Yes. Sort of like the Supreme
1: Court definition of pornography.
2: <laughs> in a way. Uh, that day, they happened to mention that one of the people sitting there, uh, Arlen Nelson, had a, uh, kept the same donut for 37 years. <laughs> so I know a story when I hear it, and that was one. Uh, hey,
1: that sounds like something I would do, too. You guys, yeah.
2: Uh, I asked him the story behind it, and uh, he and Velma Ross were teachers together. And by some coincidence, he had stolen her uh, lunch one day, which included a donut. So for the next uh, gift exchange they had at the school, she presented him with his own donut. So he kept it, froze it, gave it back to her for Christmas in a wrapped package that was the start, and it went back and forth between the two of them for 37 years in all kinds of imaginative and creative ways. Same donut? Yes, same donut, glazed. And, yeah, uh, I would only take it glazed. <laughs> only the only way to go. Yeah. A couple of years after I wrote that column about that. Well, wait,
1: stop. Where's the donut now?
2: Uh, Mrs. V- Mrs. Ross died uh, a couple Uh-oh. of years afterward. Uh oh. And Arlen put the donut in her casket, so she took it with her into eternity, just where it is now. An Eternal Donut. Yes. Oh, my God. Well, that was a fun one. Uh, uh, the Hermit? Yes, that was Ray Folk, who lived in, uh, in Broadwell, which is somewhat north of here. Uh, I was in Elkhart, Illinois at Bill Cosby. As opposed to Elkhart, Indiana. That's right. This is Elkhart, Illinois. And I go to a mower shop. Mower repair shop is kind of the As community. you do in Elkhart. Yes, everyone does. Yes. And it's run by a man named Bill Cosby, which <laughs> has a different connotation now than it used to. But uh, Bill's wife happened to mention that she had heard that uh, this old farmer in Broadwell had died, and in his will, he left uh, all of his money, which was considerable, to two actors from the 1970s who had television shows that he just happened to like, neither of which I remembered today. One of them was called Lucan, and he kept a poster from that show in his house till the day he died. And he, I called the, the lawyer who said, yes, it's true, but I want you to wait until that will goes through probate because I want all my I's dotted and T's crossed before this hits the press. So I agreed to wait, wrote about it, and. Did anybody
1: contest the will?
2: No one. It was too late by then, which was, was the attorney's strategy. But right. there was no one else in the family anyway, maybe distant nieces and the money and actually actresses. went to the actors? Went to, they came to town. They came to uh, Lincoln. Well, they, they showed up for the money. Absolutely. Come on. Each of them cleared somewhere around uh, $200,000 each because his farmland was so valuable that, that sold for well over a million dollars. And he was, of course, very poor, um, actually bathed in the creek, In the summertime, and in the winter, he didn't bathe at all. And you found that out through
1: very deep investigative reporting, (laughs) did you? Yes, I did.
2: (laughs) Uh, So that caused quite a stir. I got to meet both of the actors when they came. Now, of course, the obvious question is what did they do with the money? Well, they gave some of it back to the county for an animal shelter because this whole story revolved kind of around animals. Ray himself loved dogs, wrote like a 200-page story about one of his dogs, the story lucan was about a wolf so it all revolved around that so they gave money to the county animal shelter a pretty good chunk of of what they made and left with the rest wow and then of course speaking of Elkhart, yes they got a time capsule that was another one at at cosby's mower shop it was you the... know this cosby mower <laughs> shop is a it's a it was a, a wealth of uh... you have no idea Okay. These are the only ones that I can print that I get. And you know
1: things go on at Cosby's Mower Repair Shop because the mowers break. So they have to come in there and talk about
2: it. <laughs> and everyone's there in the morning. Uh, yeah, you got to get there early for the best stories. Yes. I get up very early and, and get out of town. All right. Town. So this
1: comes out of the mower shop again.
2: and yes. And it was their, the city's the town's 150th anniversary. Everyone knew that 50 years ago at their 100th anniversary, they had buried a time capsule communities often do and they would dig it up at the next please don't tell me there was a mower in there there was no mower in there Okay. we don't know what was in there because no one could remember where they buried the time capsule (laughs) so I talked to a lot of the older people in town who racked their brains and one thought it was here and the other thought it was there and we went through the newspaper archives for hour on end trying to find any information about where that time capsule was buried and no one ever did find it it is still lost to history.
1: So basically, they're still talking about it at the at the mower shop.
2: Yes, every once in a while, they still bring it up. Remember the time?
1: Now you mentioned it. cities and
2: towns outside of Springfield. Correct. What's the quirkiest thing inside of Springfield? Inside of Springfield, would have to be uh, Fred Fromm's barber shop. Fred has been at the same location almost fifty five years now. You get your haircut there? I do not. I make it a point not to get my hair cut at places where I'm looking for stories because I want them to remember why I'm there. Ah. And Fred had gone, went fishing in South Dakota and had his boat trailer on the back of his truck, stopped for gas in Missouri and happened to notice that the boat was no longer there. That would be an interesting discovery. So he started backtracking and about an hour later, got back into Illinois and saw a state trooper with his lights on along the side of the road and his boat and trailer very badly damaged had come unhooked and he didn't notice it until he stopped for gas and everybody teased Fred about that for years and finally he put a sign up above the barber chair in his barbershop that just said don't ask. (laughs) Of course I would be remiss if I didn't ask
1: about the Paul McCartney bathroom incident.
2: The mayor of Springfield called me one day Um, this was before Mayor Langfelder and his cousin's girlfriend's wife's brother something like See, that somebody knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a yes guy. Yeah. said that they had seen paul mccartney uh at a gas station in springfield had all gotten their pictures taken with paul and he went on his way they thought he was going to a baseball game in st louis which didn't sound quite right so i started investigating that and found that he was actually going down route 66 and had stopped here to make what we might call a pit stop at the, ba- at the uh, gas station. And the guys saw him, got their picture taken with him. And I wrote a column about it, and it was on the front page the next day. And the political reporter for the paper came over and said, what kind of life must it be where you stop to use the bathroom and it's on the front page the next day? Hey, big news in the state capitol. It was huge. Big, huge, <laughs> huge. They're not all, you know, sometimes they're poignant. Sometimes they actually make news, these columns. See, um, you had a choice. Either Paul McCartney in the bathroom or one of your governors going to jail. Which one is it? I'm
1: going with Paul. <laughs> every time. <laughs> well, you know what? Because Paul only happens once every once in a while. <laughs> your governors go to jail all the time. Quite regularly. Where are the wagons?
7: The wagon is too slow.
5: Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it on?
2: They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. How do I don't really want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs?
6: You know, when
1: you think about, you know, the traditional national parks, every state now has one, even Delaware. That wasn't the case for a while. And then you come to individual states. And what you find, if you go beyond the national parks, you find some amazing historical sites, state parks, monuments, preserves, reserves, you name it. And it's not always going to be found in the guidebooks, not always going to be found in the brochures. Sometimes I've discovered so many of them by accident. I was in Springfield a couple of years ago and forgot. I actually forgot it was Lincoln's birthplace, right? Until I saw the sign. And I turned around and went, you know, Joining me now somebody who knows where all the signs are. He's the superintendent of the Illinois State Historical Sites, Ryan Brown, How are you, man? I'm doing
8: well, thank you. Was that a good
1: enough intro? It was. I mean, the bottom line is, how many do you have here in the state? Have you counted every one of them?
8: We have, and we currently have. I knew have, you
1: did. I knew you did.
8: <laughs> we're, we're proud of that. We're asked that quite often. We have 56 state historic sites that we recognize, 26
1: of which are staffed. And we're talking everything from, what, Galena to Shawneetown? Down to Shawneetown, correct. Now, where, what is Shawneetown?
8: Uh, Shawnee Town is, we have the old Shawnee Town bank down there, uh, <laughs> right now. Um, it was a, you know, what you Greek a, style architecture, the way,
1: all the banks in the Midwest were Greek style architecture half the time and they wanted to be imposing. Mm-hmm. You felt so small when you walked in, they want to let you know where the bank, right? You know,
8: and you know, this day and age, if you're to go down there, it still has a presence. You're, you're still in awe
1: when you look at that site, but it's so much more than just the Lincoln log cabin. It is.
8: You know, we are the land of Lincoln, and we have Lincoln historic sites throughout the state, you know, whether it's the courthouses where he served as a, uh, you know, when he's a lawyer uh, in the 8th Judicial Circuit, Metamora. But you
1: know, it's easy, if I could be devil's advocate, to get lincoln out. You can be. Right. Right. So, so for example, people forget about Lewis and Clark. Hello. Right. Right. Route 66. Hello. the Route 66 is a huge draw. People think Route 66 is California. Well, yeah, Mm -hmm. it ends there, or some people say it would begin there. Right. But it's also here.
8: Yeah, you can't get there without going through Illinois.
1: That's one way to brand your state. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you got to come through us.
8: You do. Um, yeah, but you know, the Van, whether it's the Vandalia State House or the Lincoln connections up in Galena, uh, there really is a lot more than Lincoln. Uh, we're awful proud of the Cahokia Mounds State Historic Site too. It's a World Heritage Site. And what um, is that? Um, that is uh, one of the earliest civilizations that we have record of. They can go back. Archaeologists have done work going back to about 700 AD. In 1100 AD, it was the biggest city in North America. It was larger than
1: London, believe it or not. Yeah, but who was here to, to document that?
8: Uh, well, we've had to rely on archaeological there you studies go. to do to do that. So,
1: all right, what's the biggest surprise to people who come to Illinois and discover one of these by accident? What's their biggest surprise discovery?
8: Probably that that we can document history prior to statehood, and, and not just prior to statehood, but back as far as 1100 AD. And that we are, we do have the the Lewis and Clark French colonial history, um, all that that predates Illinois statehood.
1: But these are all under your custody, meaning these are 56 separate sites that the state basically either maintains or preserves. That's correct. What's the newest one?
8: The newest one uh, would be the Lewis and Clark actual state historic site that is only about 14 years old.
1: All right. We're talking new, 14 years old. We're talking new. We're talking old
8: history, but new building to commemorate that.
1: And here we are in the Lincoln Museum here in Springfield. I was walking around today. I mean, yes, there's the stovepipe hat. I got that. But there's so much other stuff in there. It's just amazing. What's now the Lincoln bedroom was his office in the White House. Mm -hmm. And what was decided there was so amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, the cabinet met up there. Right. He He was working up there all the time. Right. And... The decisions that were made there and when they made those decisions, and most importantly, perhaps, how they made those decisions, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think you know something about Lincoln, you probably do because we all went to junior high school. We, we studied it. Sure. But we didn't get the whole perspective until you come here.
8: Right. And I think, like you said, Peter, learning the how the decisions were, were reached is what's really the most integral part of the learning process.
1: I know. and I mean, it was amazing. Just the Emancipation Proclamation – Alone and how that was determined To be when it was going to come out Mm -hmm. You know here we are in an election year We've got every primary going crazy Candidacies I mean we won't even get into the politics Of it though but every time There's an election every four years Books will come out two years later to tell you Oh this is why they chose this person This is why they won that state And things that you have no clue about at the time Mm -hmm. And it's always fascinating I just wonder If we ever read the history so we can learn From it
8: (laughs) Right and a lot of times we probably learn about it too late but there there always is a some in-depth research and analysis done behind the scenes that carefully calculates why each decision was made. I mean,
1: you know, I learned a lot in just 15 minutes here about the state of Kentucky mm-hmm. and how pivotal that was to the preservation of the Union. Mm-hmm. And had Lincoln lost Kentucky, he would have lost the war. Sure. I mean, you don't remember those things. You just remember there was the South and the and the North. That was right. it, you know. Now you realize there were you couldn't move one chess piece without moving 11. And how much he had to calculate every move he made because it was hanging in the balance. Just amazing stuff. But the other 55 sites, other than this museum, are all out there. You just got to find them.
0: There you go. Keep that going. This is flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle. David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3. And you get the whole can. We won't take your cash. You got to
1: pay the class. Earlier on the show, we had the fire chief here from Springfield, Barry Helix, and who... I basically said, okay, you guys love to eat. Where do you go? He mentioned a restaurant or two, and one of those restaurants has been around for quite some time, you would say, wouldn't you?
4: I would say since 1886. That's right. Michael Higgins is the chef and the owner of? Molnar's Restaurant, Springfield, since
1: 1886, (laughs) in case (laughs) you forgot. In case you forgot in the last (laughs) 30 seconds. When did it start? Why did it start? How did it start? And what have Um, you kept on the menu since then? Since then, nothing. (laughs) Uh, So
4: there you go. It started in 18- eighteen. Well, okay, what
1: what was on the menu then? Then oh,
4: at that time it was a confectionery mostly, uh, yeah. you know, teas, coffee, women confectionery in downtown Springfield. And later in the nineteen hundreds became a lunch destination. And then as the state capital grew here, it became lunch and uh, breakfast. And then in the late seventies. It moved into uh, upscale dining in our, in our upstairs and still stayed just lunch downstairs. And in 1995, we brought everything from the second floor down, and it's been dining, uh, dinner, and lunch since.
1: So Now, obviously, we talk about farm-to-table all the time. I'm sure you guys are part of that movement. Who, no, nobody will say they're not part of that movement these days. Not
4: these days. Not these days.
1: But we were, like the restaurant, a pioneer. <laughs> We came
4: here in our covered wagons and started planting in 1886 for the restaurant. So you were cooking Me, myself. stuff. You
1: were cooking, yeah, right. <laughs> you were. You looked so great. You were cooking your own stuff.
4: Yeah, it, we still. We I came from um, California, San Francisco Bay Area. I was looking around and I said, "Why don't they have produce available like they do in California? Because it's a great growing area around here." And so right. we started talking to farmers and asking them to grow different things, and eventually. Since about the mid '80s, it kind of caught on and has been going ever since in Springfield.
1: Well, one of the things that I think was on the menu at one point was the horseshoe. Yes, the horseshoe. Okay, you've got to explain this now. I had the fire chief try to explain it to me, but yeah. I'm still a little iffy on it. So tell me what the horseshoe.
4: The was. horseshoe is real simple. It was ham. It was first of was toast, toast points, and then. Uh, cheese sauce and then french fries
1: so okay. basically an emt call waiting to happen
4: yeah but you know probably got its origins from uh, welsh rarebit and then uh, like in cincinnati and kentucky they have the hot
1: brown all right so so, so that was the first thing to leave your menu and first thing and it was also the first thing to come right come back. back on I nobody mean, wanted to go yeah.
4: because like a lot of people like you said I was like i would say why would you eat this you know, because it looks but like you, a but you do. heart attack ready to happen. But you do. And yeah, well, we took it off because no one would eat this. And then we realized everyone eats it. So it
1: came back on. <laughs> it's, it's I'll never eat that. Get it on the menu. Like Where'd it go? I want yeah. it back. Exactly. And well, they walked out and yeah. they couldn't get it. They really did. Yeah. Yeah. You had to bring them back. Had to. You know, I always ask everybody, especially the chefs, you know, what was the one thing you put on your menu that you thought nobody would like and they loved it? And what's the one thing you said everybody's going to like it and it tanked?
4: Oh, well, we replaced the horseshoe with a nice breeches and country pate plate. Still tanks.
1: We're in Springfield, <laughs> Illinois,
4: with the breeches and country. It's like, people, give me the horseshoe. it from
1: California. Give me a break. <laughs>
4: <laughs> you know, it was like, um, and then some of the things that surprise, well, nothing surprises me anymore, kind of, because nowadays it's all fair game uh people are more into experimenting people travel more people read more people because of tv people are seeing a lot of things so anything's fair game now
1: all right so but you still do a lot of farm to table stuff you've got uh, a morel mushroom pie Uh
4: coming up uh probably uh don't quote me on this people don't start calling a restaurant but mid-april okay coming up coming up that's uh morel season right around around the corner an asparagus tart? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, that's Again, that's with the growing season. That starts in about beginning of May, mid-May asparagus around here. And, and they grow
1: great asparagus around and here. And the sweet corn pancakes.
4: And that's, and that's, that's July. What they, that's what I want, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. That's what I want.
4: July, and then also the, uh, our famous tomato plate, which is a variety of heirloom tomatoes. With also. burrata.
1: Yeah. So you threw that in there, a little yeah, California threw, thing. Yeah.
4: I got it's, you. Well, now, like I said, TV people watch TV shows. <laughs> They don't listen to radio anymore.
1: All right, Michael. Yes, I, get, I do. I, okay, here's, here's my question, though. Where do you eat? What do I eat yeah, when no, I go where home? Yeah, where do you oh. eat when you're not in your own restaurant?
4: When I'm in, not in my own restaurant? I, when I go home at the end of no, the day? No, no,
1: but not home,
4: out. Oh, out. out. Um, can I name other Of ones? course, okay. we name names here. So, yeah, usually on a Sunday night, we go to a restaurant called Fritz's. And It's Why? just a local restaurant because the food's very consistent there and know the people. And... Uh, it's older you get professional population. courtesies. Yeah, and there's an the older population that eats there, so young people don't eat there. Just old people like me.
1: <laughs> Stop it! So you go for the early bird special? What do you no,
4: mean? no, we go for the eight o'clock special. Oh, you're oh, you're pushing of, it now
1: with lots of vodka. And by nine o'clock, it doesn't matter what's on the menu. Right, got exactly. it. Uh, but if I was coming to, to, to Springfield for the first time, not counting your place, oh. where would you send me?
4: Springfield has a lot of great restaurants. In the downtown area we have Auggie's, and Top of the Hilton is good. And uh, outside of Auggie's, we have American Harvest that's really adopted into the um, uh, farm to table. We also downtown have
2: uh, Driftwood. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
1: Hey, Prime members, Peter Greenberg here. You can listen to Ion Travel ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. And you can listen ad free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. And before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com.
0: If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits business and swim. You know, with your Delta Sky Miles Business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone? Check. Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Visit go.amex.com. You know business. Hey, it's Matt Norlander with the CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast. And it is tournament time, people. So listen to the one podcast that will cover every upset. Cinderella, Bracket Buster, Sleeper. We've got it all covered. Every round, reaction shows all the way up through the championship game in Glendale, Arizona. To find us, search Ion College Basketball Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.